I appreciate the song leader's choice of songs this evening and the wonderful song service that we had this morning. It is always so uplifting when God's people sing and they truly sing. And what I heard tonight was I heard men and women who opened their mouths and like my daddy used to say, got ugly with it as we sang and letting God know exactly what we feel and why we feel that way. It is a shame that so many of us in the Lord's Church are going through an identity crisis right now. Whereas I said this morning, we don't know who we are, and for some reason we've forgotten whose we are. When we as God's children understand our heritage and our lineage and our king and our kingdom and our relationship with a God who has never failed, has never lost a case, a God who has always promised us, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And when we understand that relationship with our God, our God who loved us so much that he decided to save us when we weren't savable. And I use that word saying that we weren't worthy. A lot of times when we start talking about our salvation, too often we talk about it like we earned it, like we were worthy, like we got some things right. We quit sinning. We changed ourselves. We changed the world. And God says, you guys have made some progress. I guess I'll save you. But no, it's not like that. But while we were sinners, God commended his love toward us. That word commended comes from a term, is interpreted from a Greek term, which means demonstrated. God says, I love you so much that while you are unworthy, while you are disobedient, while you are a race that has turned against me, that has transgressed my law, that have looked upon me and turned your back upon me, I'm still going to save you. God decided to save man, and he decided to send his son to die in our place. Too many times as we talk about this, we forget Jesus didn't just die for our sins. I'm so happy that Jesus died for our sins, but that's not the whole story. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Jesus died in our place. Jesus died when we were supposed to have died. Jesus suffered when we were supposed to have suffered. He took our beating, he took our whipping, and though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. He lowered himself to allow that which he created, that he gave life, to beat upon him, rail upon him, and take his life. Jesus did this because he loves us. So when we hear wonderful songs, that was one of my mother's, most favorite songs. We'll understand it all by and by. I can remember hearing her humming that song while she made her famous biscuits, as we called them. And I was a 12 biscuit man myself. But when she would make her biscuits and hum, we could hear her hum. My grandmother's was, I'll be a friend to Jesus. And I thank God so much for growing up in a home where there were men and women who loved the Lord and transferred that love and taught that love and demanded that love upon their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren. And I thank the Lord for this congregation. You can tell a congregation that's well-taught and well-shepherded. You can tell folks that truly enjoy each other's company, like each other from the old to the very young. It don't take long to tell 
when you are in the fellowship of God's people. And I thank him so much for you allowing me to be here today. And I pray that I say something or have said something that will be beneficial, uplifting, that brings glory to God and brings edification to each and every one of us. When we go back within the scriptures and we look at who we are and where we came from, as I mentioned this morning, the Bible says, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. There are those who today want to take uh, issue with that and say that the earth is some type of accidental affair and that man is something that evolved from something that was lower. And none of this makes any sense because life demands a life giver. Creation demands a creator. Design demands a designer. If there is order, someone has to exert order and exert power for that order to come to being. Things don't go from disorder to order. They go from order to disorder. Your minister took me over to, what was that building we went to? Philadelphia, the old Philadelphia building. And he was telling me how that some, so many of the church leaders and brothers and there was two plaques out there in stone, engraved in stone, that talked about the men that went over and lifted that building up and worked on that building and restored that building. Why? Because things go from order to disorder. If you walked out of this beautiful auditorium and turned off the lights and locked the doors and didn't come back for 20 years, this building wouldn't be pristine and perfect and beautiful as it is now. That would be something different. The carpet would roll. The seats would have exploded. Uh, the paint would fall off the wall. Some of those panels would have fallen down. Some of those chandeliers would have fallen down. Because things go from order to disorder, not from disorder to order. The scientists and the, the, the physicists and others, I remember this test in physics. They said, Eureka, we have found it. We can tell you that there are only five different categories of existence. And when they looked at this, and I remember that question with one, two, three, four, five in a line by each one of them in my physics class back in 1969. And in that they said there is time, there is force, there is action, there is space, and there is matter. And I remember filling in each of those blanks, at least I hope I filled them in, as I was taking that physics test back in 69. But you know something, when I got to Freed Hardeman, I, mean, I thought I was smart. Boy, I thought I knew the Bible. I'd been in Sunday school my whole life. I'd sit and listen to my daddy preach all the time. And they gave us a Bible test. Remember that Bible test when you first enroll? They want to, first of all, let you realize how stupid you are before they start teaching you. And the fact that you think you know the Bible, but you really don't. And I remember taking that test and sitting there just knowing when they were passing it out. Man, I'm going to ace this thing because I know the Bible. Boy, I did so bad on that test because I knew stuff, but I couldn't connect it. I was not looking at it from a holistic perspective. I'm in a room full of Bible scholars. I'm not going to quote any scripture the preacher here, Brother Lawrence, is not going to quote any scripture. The shepherds are not going to quote any scripture. 
that the majority of you have not heard, don't already know, and probably have taught at some point in your personal evangelism. But the fact of the matter is, what we have a tendency of doing is not preparing ourselves to fight a formidable, formidable enemy who can change and alter his behavior and twist and rest and pervert the word at will. As men change their opinion, he changes his approach. When I go to the book of Genesis chapter 1, and thinking about what my physics teacher taught me on that day, when he talked about the different categories. And you probably have heard this already, but I love looking at this because how in the world did this accidentally get in the very first verse of the Bible? When the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that's time. Created, that's force. I mean, God, that is force. Created, that is action. The heavens, that is space. The earth, that is matter. How in the very first verse of the Bible, as God revealed it to Moses many, many years ago, and scientists say, Eureka, we found it, but it's in the very first verse of the Bible. God wanted man to know that, um, that my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts and ways are as far above your thoughts and ways as the heavens are above the earth. God once said, if I wanted to know something, I wouldn't ask you. The fact is, we know nothing that God has not taught us. Jeremiah once said to the people, he said, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Without revelation, if God had not loved us enough to give us this book, to reveal to us those things written in the pages of inspiration, we would be lost. The only reason we know who God is is because he told us. The only way we understand redemptive religion is because he told us. The only reason we know the true account that God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life and man became a living soul is because God told us. God made everything. And when we look at what God has made, we got to understand something about God. When God made the <coughs> excuse me, when God made the animals of the earth and God placed the sun on nothing and hung the moon on nothing and flung the stars into the sky, God made everything that crawls and swims and flies and then God made man. And when God made man and formed man, God looked at man, looked at Adam, the first man, and everything God had made, God said it's good. It's good. It's very good. But then there was one thing that God said was not good. God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmate. And then under the guise of naming the animals, God brought everything that he had made before Adam. Adam got a chance to see everything. And the Bible says, for everything God had made, there was a mate. But for Adam, there was not a mate. 
Once Adam truly understood how profoundly alone he was and that there was nothing else on the earth that was physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually attractive to him, God then placed Adam, the Bible lets me know, in a deep sleep. And while this man is in a deep sleep, he opened up his side. From his side, he took a rib. From that rib, he made the woman and placed her at his side, indicating she's not his slave nor his master, but another self, a helpmeet, a counselor. And he brought them alongside, and then God gave them dominion, dominion over the earth. For everything that God had made, God gave them this instinctive motivation. Bees make honey. Only God and the bees know the recipe for honey. We might want to make it, and but we can't do it because only God and the bees can do it. We can watch the geese as they fly across the sky at certain times of the year. They didn't go to the Air Force Academy. They didn't study aeronautics. But God instinctively put that in them. They can leave from one tree and fly 2,000 miles and navigate and land on another tree on the other side of the world. The beaver didn't study architectural design But he can build a house under the water that he can go in the water and go on the inside and be warm and dry. He didn't take that at UT. He didn't study at Vanderbilt. God instinctively gave that to him. And when we talk about all the things that God has done, the spider's web and all the wonders of the natural world, God did it and gave it to them instinctively. But then he made man. He made man, and he gave man reason. He gave us intelligence. He gave us intuitiveness. And then he gave us law. He gave us law. And when you look within the scriptures, it's written in comparative language. God gives us the blessings. God gives us the curses. Then God gives us choice. You choose how you're going to live And what the eventuality of your demise is going to be. Why? Because the nature of God is just that. God always shows love. God is always merciful. God is always just. But God doesn't punish the righteous with the wicked. Nor does God violate our free moral agency. When you're saved, and you ought to be saved, and I hope you are saved, and we got to stay saved, we must understand something about God. God will not save you without your consent. And God will not save you without your participation. If you're going to go to heaven, it's because you obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, if clause, if, if you love me, Keep my commandments. The Lord, he equates love with being obeyed. Don't tell me you love me and you won't obey me. Don't tell me you adore me and you won't follow me. Don't tell me you reverence me and you won't follow my example. If you love me, then keep my commandments. Jesus says, I'm worthy. I am the way. The truth and the life. No man coming unto the Father except or but by me. Jesus says, I'm calling all of you. There are two inviters. Everybody's got to understand that. 
When we think about this, brothers and sisters, God didn't make hell for us. When we go through the scriptures, I thank God for that book. Because I know why there's a hell and it wasn't for me. He didn't make it for me and you. Because when I see the love of God, and folks, I just can't see a God who said he loved us and sent us to hell. Well, he didn't make hell for us. The Bible says he made hell for the devil and his angels. The only way you can even get in hell is to accept the invitation of the current occupant. And that's the devil. And he's inviting every one of us to join him in a torment that wasn't meant for you. Jesus tells you what's meant for you. When Jesus told Peter, as I said this morning, that you're going to deny me, that you're going to say that you don't even know me, the most wonderful thing then happened right after that sad, shameful moment that he told Peter that he was going to deny him. You know what the Lord then went on to say? I can fix you. I can fix you. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You see, a lot of us quote that scripture, but we don't connect it to that moment when the Lord told Peter that you're going to deny me. The very next thing he said is, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Hell wasn't made for me. I shouldn't walk around scared like the Lord is holding me by a spider web over hell and he can let go anytime. That's not the God that I serve. That's not the God that you serve. The God I serve clearly says, I am not willing. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The God I serve says, I don't want to lose you. I don't want to lose you to my enemy. I don't want to lose you to the one that started rebellion in heaven. I don't want to lose you to the one that brought death upon you in the first place. I don't want to lose you. I am not willing that any should perish. Jesus says, I'm inviting you to me. He's inviting you to hell. You come unto me. Come to me. All of you that labor and are heavy laden, I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you will find rest to your soul. All that trouble and stress that people put on you, all that garbage and gooby got that people have tell you that you got to be so that you're successful in life so that you can make your mark and fight your way up the ladder God says look look I'll bless every one of you that's what the Lord says the Lord says here's the deal for my people and we as his people need to understand the deal did you get the memo I got the memo you know what the Lord said seek ye first Seek ye first, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness and all the things shall be given unto you. You seek me first, I'll make you a doctor. That's no big deal. You seek me first, I'll send you to law school. I'll send you to veterinary school. I'll let you be a pharmacist. I'll let you be a teacher. I'll teach you how to be an architect. I don't care. I don't need this stuff down here. I made it for you.
You seek me first. All I'm asking you to do is put me first in your life. Brothers and sisters, don't we get it? God wants first place in our lives. And that is the only place he will accept. God's not going to be relegated to a microwave oven when we just happen to need to warm up something. God says, I want first place in your life. And I'm not going to live in a duplex with the devil. The Lord says, no man can serve two masters. So I'm not going to live on one side and the devil live on the other side. So you got to hold to one and loose the other, or loose one and hold to the other, but no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and stuff or God and mammon. What God asks every one of us is to just make, make the right decision. Act in your best interest. Keep yourself. He's, he kept the animals. He gave them instinctive motivation, but he gave us intelligence and said, keep yourself, keep yourself, take charge of yourself. Too many of us have abdicated our responsibility to keep ourselves. And too many folks, especially they're getting younger and younger and older and older, who want the world to write the script for their lives. I told you this this morning on verse 2. Let me tell you verse 1. The Apostle Paul, when he was talking to the brethren at Rome, and it's called the book that changed the world. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 1, Paul says, I beseech you, I beseech you. Paul knew he was in the hotbed of idolatry the hotbed of heathenism, perversion, all types of nasty, ridiculous sin that was going on in Rome. Paul knew this, but when he looked at God's people, he says, I dare you, beg you, implore you to be different, to be different. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of the mercies God has already extended to every one of us, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed, I told you this this morning, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God says, I shouldn't have to beg you to get you to serve me. I shouldn't have to chase you to get you to serve me. I shouldn't have to threaten you. I shouldn't have to bribe you. I shouldn't have to abuse you or smack you upside your head. You need to come and say, Lord, here is this body. Lord, here is this body. Here are these eyes, Lord, to see. You told me, blessed are the merciful. So, Lord, I want to be those eyes that can see where the need is. I want to be this eye that can see the suffering, see the lost, see those who are their own worst enemy. As the Apostle Paul says, caught in the devil's prison camp. Lord, I want these eyes to belong to you so that I can see the difference between the holy and the profane. Lord, they belong to you. Lord, I want these hands to belong to you, Lord. And I need you to teach me, Lord, the difference in how to properly use the firm hand, and the tender touch. Lord, teach me. Teach me how to be a vessel of your service. Lord, I need you to take these feet to walk me in the right direction, to make me run when need, make me stand when I should, and make me fight when the fight is brought to me. 
Brother Keeble said in a lesson, I remember sitting, I was telling Brother Lawrence on the side of the pulpit, turning around looking at him while he was preaching. And he said, God put our eyes in the front of our head looking in that direction. And he made our feet pointing forward saying that's the direction he needs us to go. That's the direction the Lord needs each and every one of us to go. As we keep ourselves, we give this vessel, say, Lord, this belongs to you. And the Lord has said, you give it to me. Remember when the Lord asked Solomon, God said, Solomon, what do you want? And because Solomon said, give this boy, and he called himself a child. Give me wisdom. Give me the ability to discern so that I can rule this great people. Coming behind his storied and fabled father, he says, I need your help and I need your wisdom. And God gave it to him. And don't you realize that as James said, if you need wisdom, go to God. Ask him for it because God holds you responsible. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses 22. When the apostle Paul, he left Titus at Crete. He left Timothy at Ephesus. And he left both of them there to set in order to teach, to get things right, to strengthen the church, to fortify and anchor them with the word of God. And what he told Timothy when time to find shepherds, he says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. He said, keep thyself pure. In other words, he said to Timothy on many occasions, don't you get caught up in the sins of youth. Don't you get caught up in gossip. Don't you get caught up in the tales and the stories and the fables. You keep yourself. And in a world today that's telling you that the only way that you can even, don't you understand how old-fashioned that Christianity is? You know it is amazing to me, and we better get it as Christians in America. You can set Buddha out very well and very well seen in the public thoroughfares, and nobody says a word. You can set Hindu temples like on Old Hickory, I believe it is, in there in Nashville, huge, very stately, beautiful architecture, and nobody says a word. You can put the emblems of various exotic religions, and nobody says a word. But when you put up a cross, you put a cross up all of a sudden that folks are offended. Offended to the extent that in a military cemetery, where men have given and women have given their last measure of devotion, they covered the crosses, covered them, because somebody said the crosses offended them. It's not religion that's under attack in America. It's Christianity that's under attack. It's not all religious documents under attack in America. It's the Bible that's under attack. It's not people of the various exotic religions that are under attack. It's you that's under attack. You are public enemy number one. Because you're different. And what you stand for comes to the very heart and foundation of what this nation was in day one. In Acts chapter 2 and verses 40, the apostle Paul, when he was speaking, not Paul, but Peter, when he was delivering that sermon, 
when he stood before those Jews who had murdered Jesus Christ, he says, ye men of Israel, you hear these words. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, you, and I believe he looked them dead in their eyes, you have with wicked hands crucified and slain, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death, for it was not possible for him to be holding of it. And don't you realize that as he went on and preached, the Bible says they that they heard Peter, they heard the apostles, and the Bible says they were pricked at their hearts. That's what you do. When you preach this word, you prick men in the hearts. When you stand up for what's right, you prick them in the hearts. When you raise your children in the nurture and admonition of God, when you hold your families together with men holding their heads up, while American society is trying to demasculate the men and masculate the women. While the men are swishing and the women are building muscle in America because God's order is under attack. And we better understand it. They hate you because of what you stand for. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, the Bible says they were pricked in their hearts your job is to prick them in the hearts. You're going to have at least one of three different reactions. They're going to be sad, like the rich young ruler when he came with his chest all poked out saying, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Picking his teeth, knowing he's not going to tell him anything that he hadn't heard. And when the Lord said, he said man, I've been doing that stuff my whole life. Jesus looked at him and already knew he was looking at a fool. And he says, I'll tell you what, you sell everything you've got. You give it to the poor. Now, if you want to be a big shot, you do that and then you follow me. And the Bible says he went away sorrowful. A lot of the people we talk to are going to be foolish to that extent because the devil has fooled them into believing that's what makes a man whose name is on his suit and whose name is on his underwear and on his shoes and the vehicle that he drives. All that's nice stuff. God don't mind giving you the stuff. But God says, it is me that you worship, not the stuff. Some folks are going to be sad. Some folks are going to be mad. When Stephen stood up on that day and rehearsed the scheme of redemption and went through it point by point by point with men who knew the prophets, knew the scriptures. And the Bible says, instead of saying, you know what, you made a good point, that they became angry and they bit upon this boy and drug him out on the outskirts of town and killed that young gospel preacher, killed him dead for doing nothing but preaching the truth. So sometimes folks are going to be sad because you stand. Sometimes they're going to be mad because you stand. They're going to threaten your job. They're going to threaten your position. We were talking this afternoon. They got a full-fledged ad campaign going on against me in Memphis right now, calling me everything but a child of God because I voted for the heartbeat bill. I just didn't have any better sense than say if it has a heartbeat, it must be alive. 
I just didn't have any better sense than assume that something with a heartbeat must be alive. And so they say they're going to get me out there. They're angry. And they're going to throw stones not just at me, but at all of you when you stand for what is right. But every now and then, folks are going to be glad. And I was looking at the pictures of the new members out there in the hall, which means y'all had some folks who were glad, who said, men, brethren, what shall we do? And they were told on that day, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the same boy y'all beat up like a dog and hung him on a cross between two thieves. You be baptized in his name, and he will make you over and give you a new life. In Philippians chapter 2 and verses 12, we are told to work out our soul salvation in fear and trembling. Before I sit down, I want you to understand a couple of things. Brothers and sisters, what's your life? What, what's your life? Who are you? Look at yourself. When you look in retrospect and you look backwards, where has God brought you from? Where were you when you understood that someone loved you better than you love yourself? Where were you when the little light came on that I'm trying to live this life by myself? When there's someone pleading and crying and calling to help me and says that they will help me if I change myself. Paul said the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men doing what Paul teaching us. What Paul teaching us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly. That's my responsibility to myself. Don't get drunk with pride. Don't get drunk with materialism. Don't get drunk with worldliness. Don't get drunk with the desires of this world. Soberly, righteously. That's my responsibility to my brothers. The Lord owns everything. I can't give him anything other than my obedience. This is why when the Lord was teaching, he said, some will come in that day. And I'll say, depart from me. But why, Lord? I was hungry. You didn't feed me. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. Thirsty. You didn't give me drink. You didn't visit me. You didn't take care of me. When you know that I blessed you to the extent that you could take care of those needs. But, Lord, when did I see you? He says, you didn't get the memo. Say, I don't need anything. When you do it unto others, the deal was, I would account it as though you're doing it unto me. And so Paul said, we've got to be righteous in this world. We've got to get outside of ourselves and we've got to see the needs of others, especially the needs of others to be saved. We can save America, but we've got to save Americans. We've got to save them one at a time. When we save people, we save our nation. Soberly, righteously, godly. My responsibility to my creator, my God in heaven, to observe his law. The Lord says, uh, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. I see these babies all around in this room. All these beautiful children and grandchildren that y'all are so proud of in this room. They are, brothers and sisters, they tell me that they're somewhere about 15 to 20% of the population. But they are 100% of the future. 
And if the church is going to continue in this location, at Coleman where I preach, and all over this nation, if the church is going to continue, they are the future. We've got to look and teach and train them now. We can't be so busy giving them what we didn't have that we forget to give them what we did have. We did have someone, I remember my mama getting me straight on many occasions. I remember my daddy getting in my face and letting me know that what I'm and how I'm going to live in his house. Oh, today they say that's abusive. But you know, I stand in this pulpit because somebody put the fear of God in me and let me know that I'm not going to make my decisions that until I move out of that house that he makes them for me. Brothers and sisters, these children are our ambassadors. We send them to a time that they will not see. Pearl Lee DeBerry is gone. John DeBerry Sr. is gone. Starling Hall is gone. Susie Hall is gone. Mary Garrett is gone. Ennis Garrett is gone. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, they're all gone. But I stand here in this pulpit. I stand here today. Because they raised me in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm here because somebody got me up. I don't ever remember being asked if I felt like going to church. Or if I wanted to go to school. Or if I wanted to go out there and get on that John Deere tractor. If I wanted to pick up that hoe and go to I just don't remember being asked if I wanted to do any of it. I want to go to heaven one day, don't you? I want to see my Lord. I want to look at Jesus' face. I want to say thank you. Thank you for all you've done for me. I want to let him know how much I appreciate his sacrifice for me on the cross. I want to go to heaven, and you do too. We don't want to. As the Apostle Paul said, if, if in this life only, this life only, we have hope, we are above all men most miserable. Most miserable. When we've had so many blessings, I've heard the word, I believe it with all of my heart. You do too. When we get men and women to repent of their sins and acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and are buried in the water and grave of baptism, the word resurrection means to stand up again. You bury the old man because you mortified him. Say, I'm not going to feed you any longer. I will not feed you. You're two men. The spiritual man, the physical man, the one you feed will live. The one you starve will die. And when you starve that old mortal, physical, temporal man, anything dead need burying, you pick him up and you bury him in a watery grave. And you stand up again. And you walk in the newness of life. If you fall away, the Lord gave the story of the prodigal for the express reason of letting you know you're my children. You're my children. And when my children return, you put a ring on my children's finger. Put a robe on my children's back. We have, we have a feast. The angels in heaven sing, my child was lost, but now they're found. My child was blind, but now he sees. Let's all go to heaven together. Let's go to heaven together and let's sing and shout the victory. Think about it.